Tired of the center-left takes at the corporate media? You found the right take. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Right Take. This is episode number 45, part two. I'm Eric Lindrum. I'm Jacob Grandstaff. And of course, apologies for the little hiatus we went on over the last couple of weeks. Of course, we had a really big holiday, one of the biggest holidays of the year, Thanksgiving. We both had our respective Thanksgiving plans, and we did our first part of the 2020 election special before Thanksgiving, of course. And we thought maybe we could belt out the second part before Thanksgiving and have it upload for you guys during that week. But as our research led us to discover, there is a lot of information here. There's a lot of number crunching. There's a lot of back and forth. So many old anecdotes that I, I forgot about and then suddenly remembered over the course of this research. So we knew we couldn't do it in time without it being the highest quality content that you guys deserve. So we are back now to deliver the rest of this special investigative episode before we go back to our regular episodes for the rest of the year. But before that, I did want to know, this is something that tragically was not recognized enough, and I did mention this to my family for Thanksgiving. This year was the 400th anniversary of the original Thanksgiving. 1621, a year after the Pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock, to 2021. 400 years of being thankful at least one day of the year, which I think is something that we really should appreciate as a society a lot more. But unfortunately, as we all know, as we've known for years, the commercial materialistic society we live in always skips right over Thanksgiving. As soon as Halloween is done, boom, the Christmas decorations come out and Thanksgiving just gets glossed over. And especially this year with Thanksgiving being a racist holiday, people really don't like celebrating it. But I made sure, I think we should all make sure to celebrate the 400th anniversary of our ancestors' conquest of this land. And that is what I did. Jacob, uh, how about you? How was your Thanksgiving? So my family, uh, we all decided to kind of make this a, a time of reflection, to reflect on the, the horrible atrocities that our ancestors committed against the Native Americans. So uh, we didn't really celebrate. I, I, we just kind of sat around in the living room and just remembered all of the horrible, tragic things that white people did. And we just kind of, you know, we didn't eat kind of fast because we didn't want to fill our bellies. We wanted to kind of feel a little bit of the pain that some of the, the poor Native Americans felt through the starvation that they had to endure. So, yeah, I, I don't know what's wrong with you. I don't know why your family would celebrate genocide. I mean, no, not my family. I did. My family – no, I'm leaving my family out of this. I made sure to celebrate. You made sure to celebrate genocide, the genocide of the of the innocent you know, Native Americans who were completely, perfectly in tune with nature and each other. It's just – Horrible. It's tragic. The know? real genocide of Thanksgiving, excuse me, is the genocide of turkeys every year. That is the genocide that is the real tragedy, as the vegans and the animal rights activists would have you to believe. <laughs> oh fun fact, I, I gotta mention this. This is a fun fact I'd like to bring up. If good old Benjamin Franklin, Mr. $100 Bill, had his way, the turkey would have been the national bird of the United States. I enjoy Thanksgiving. I made some of my deviled eggs. It's one of the very few things that I know how to make, so I was able to provide that for the Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, it was a good time. I spent about a week back home. Actually, I went home uh, the previous weekend before Thanksgiving for a cousin's wedding. And then, of course, the following weekend was Thanksgiving. And then I came right back to the swamp. So I'm back here again and uh, ready to dive right back into, again, the anniversary, a little over one year now, of the 2020 election, which I do maintain was a fraudulent election. And we are here to dive right back into that and the various numbers behind each of the key swing states that ultimately swung the results of the election away from President Trump and in favor of Joe Biden. So before we move on to the new states, we for the last episode, of course, we talked about first broader national trends, historical trends, bellwether states, and all kinds of things that were just completely shattered by Biden winning. All the, the basic trends, all the patterns, such as Trump's many accomplishments in office and primary performance and everything, 
pointed to Trump winning re-election easily. And yet Biden somehow won despite losing all the bellwether counties, losing some of the bellwether states. It just didn't make sense. Then we focused entirely on Arizona because that is currently the one and only swing state that has actually had a full comprehensive audit. And the audit revealed many irregularities, which I do ultimately believe meant the election was probably stolen. Or at the very least, people in Arizona, certainly Maricopa County, had something to hide. And they did everything they could to hide it from the, the state Senate and the audit that they were leading. But now we've got to focus on the other states that were at play here. And before we do that, we got to address a previous point that we discovered in our research that in the previous episode, we talked about how Robert Barnes and Richard Barris found proof allegedly that Biden underperformed Hillary Clinton in every major metro area, every big city, except for four, those being Milwaukee, Philadelphia, Atlanta, and Detroit, which are located in the four key swing states, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Georgia, that ultimately swung the election away from Trump. However, apparently, I think what appears to have happened here, we, we and we didn't look into this beforehand, but we're looking into it now, apparently, maybe those numbers were conducted and those conclusions were drawn while the election was still ongoing, just a few days after the fact, without time for full more votes to come in. So we looked at a handful of the cities involved, the, some of the big cities, just to compare a few. To see, okay, as more votes poured in, and again, say what you will, whether or not these were real votes or not, or more extended fake mail-in votes, but either way, more votes came in, and there were, in fact, a few cities where Biden did, in fact, outperform Hillary in 2016. Uh, two examples, of course, are Seattle, Washington, and Denver, Colorado. In Seattle, and I'm looking specifically at the vote totals for King County, where Seattle is located, in 2016, Hillary got 72% of the vote to Trump's 22%. In 2020, Biden got 75% to Trump, again, getting 22%. And then in Denver, Colorado, 2016, and this is one of those cases kind of like San Francisco where the city is the county and vice versa, so it's just Denver. Hillary got 74 to Trump's 19. And in 2020, Biden got 79%, 79 79.5, so almost 80%. To Trump's 18%. So in both cases, I do think it's kind of weird. Trump got the exact same percentage, basically, but Biden just slightly outperformed Hillary by a couple percentage points. I think that, if nothing else, would indicate the third-party candidates just crashed and burned that year compared to 2016, which, I mean, again, you could argue that also might play to voter fraud. You know, we looked back at irregularities such as uh, new vote dumps in Michigan. We had a screenshot of this in the video version of the last episode where new vote totals came in that completely 100% went for Biden and increased his vote total without touching Trump or any of the third-party candidates. So I'm willing to admit that some of the third-party candidates may have also been affected by fraud the way Trump was, but either way, this just the fact that these couple of cities seem to refute what Barnes and Barris claimed, which we do definitely need to include that kind of as an addendum to the previous point we made in the last episode. Well, remember, even Wisconsin, as we're going to get into whenever we do, whenever we cover Wisconsin, uh, they kept all the third-party candidates off the ballot. That's right. So, I mean, yep. they, they, the they were going to make sued. sure they didn't. Yeah. And, and in Michigan, I think, or one of those states, the Democratic Party sued to get the Green Party kicked off the ballot. Not the Libertarians, just the Green Party, because the Green Party is the major left wing third party that draw, that siphons votes away from the Democrats every year. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. We encourage everyone to go back and look and uh, listen to that episode. The first part of episode uh, 45, part one, where you can look into the deep dive we did on Arizona as well as some of the circumstantial evidence. But another aspect of the circumstantial evidence that we covered is the bellwether counties. And the Bellwether counties are a list of 19 different counties that each election cycle since 1980 have predicted who was going to win the election. They went the, These counties went for – an overwhelming majority of them went for the winner in each and every time. 
538 though did a little bit of a uh, little bit of, of a deep dive into this to understand why these counties did not predict the winner or the uh, the supposed winner in 2020. And we're going to include a couple of we'll include a link to this and they provide a couple of graphs. One exa- one reason that they point out to is these counties are overwhelmingly white and in most of these counties less than 25% of the population has at least a bachelor's degree. And the Democratic Party has become a party of white elites who rule over the minority proletariat in their party. And this has been the the trend ever since Obama became president in 2008. It was slowly becoming that way in the 90s, but especially consolidated once Trump won in 2016. As they continue especially importing more illegal aliens. And, and we talked about this specifically. This trend was clearly displayed in the Virginia election that the rural voters and white non-college educated voters – overwhelmingly came out for Youngkin but in even greater droves than they did for Trump. And New York Times and others have pointed out, yeah, the Democrats have not yet reached their floor with rural voters. That mm-hmm. floor is zero, and they could very well get there. And it just shows how far apart college-educated voter white voters are from non-college-educated white voters when Youngkin actually did worse with college-educated women, yep. even though he's – remember, he's supposed to be the more polished Republican candidate. He's the supposed nice to be, guy. No yeah, mean tweets. The nice suburban dad. And this is where a lot of analysts got it wrong. They claim, well, he's the nice suburban dad, so a lot of college-educated women were uh, drawn to him. No, that's not the case at all. In fact, college-educated women were more drawn to Trump than they were to Youngkin. <laughs> I mean, McAuliffe <laughs> won 62% of college-educated white women, so that's obviously not the case. But with these bellwether counties – 538 put up a graph and they showed that they're all clustered in over 80 to not about 80 to 90 percent of the population in these counties are white, whereas it's about 65 to about 60 to 70 percent. Depends on how you define white. It's anywhere from 60 to 70 percent of the country is white. So these counties are a lot whiter than the average population of the, of the country. They're also a lot less educated, a lot less college educated because being college educated doesn't necessarily mean you're educated, but they're a lot less college educated than the majority of the country, whereas it's about 40 – about 35 to 40% is college educated. Most of these counties are like 25% college educated. Another thing, if you look at the – another graph that I'm looking at, if you see in the notes we've uh, we've got here, they show in 1980 there was a huge swing toward Reagan. 1984, a much larger swing, like 30% percentage points in these counties that went for Reagan. Then, of course, it shifts back to about 10% in 1988, and then there's a huge jump to about uh, plus 5% Democrat in 1992. 1996, it's plus 10 Democrat whenever Clinton won re-election, Bill Clinton won re-election. Then in 2000, it's a swing to about plus 5 for Bush, plus 8 for Bush in 2004. Massive swing the other way for Back Obama. For Obama. Yeah, for to about plus 8 Democrat for Obama then. A slight move to the right with mm-hmm. Romney. It's about plus 5 Obama mm-hmm. in 2012. And then a massive, massive lurch for Trump. Uh, to about plus 15 points in these counties for Trump in like, 2016. That's like the single biggest lurch from one party to the next between two elections on this entire chart. Right, it's right. And, and they don't give the individual numbers, but we just it, it goes uh, by 10 points on this graph. So mm-hmm. it looks like it either stayed exactly the same or moved one point in Trump's direction in 2020. Right. So like it might have been plus 16 for these bellwether counties for Trump. And if you look at the demographics of the counties – these counties are more of the traditional like blue collar uh, white counties that would have voted for somebody like uh, you know like a John F Kennedy exactly and then swung for Ronald Reagan like mm-hmm. uh, you know blue collar uh, blue collar Democrats blue collar uh, like blue collar Reagan voters so I don't know if you can necessarily call and I five thirty eight does kind of have a point 
that it's not really – I don't th- really think it's fair to call these counties bellwether counties anymore because – just because the political landscape in this country has been scrambled so much. The the difference between – this is the thing, the, the huge difference between the country today and the country 40 years ago. 40 years ago, you did not have a college-educated elite like you do today. The college-educated elite just didn't exist 40 years ago like they do today. Well, and 40 years ago, college did not brainwash you into thinking that America is a racist country and that, like, you know, you should abandon your parents and abandon your heritage and your family. And it, it was not a completely different worldview. It was actual education. You you learned how to do a particular trade. You learned how you learned how to you went into STEM and you actually, like, learned valuable career skills. It mm-hmm. was education. Now it's edumacation. Now it's indoctrination. And that is why, as you pointed out, we see this increasing divide, this massive gap now between college-educated and non-college educated. And, so and it's, it's no longer a matter of like, oh, the, the dumb people vote for Trump. That's not the case. No, it's not a matter of them being dumb. It's that they have two completely different worldviews now. And the two factors that contributed to this was the tech revolution, of course, yep. which drew a bunch of people who would have just been nerds who would become math teachers and made and allowed them to become billionaires. Another aspect was the massive growth in the public sector. So a lot of these people who 40, 50 years ago would have been working factory jobs, making good money, having a good life. In order, if they want to have that life now, they've had to go. They've had to move to Washington D.C. So that's why you see a massive explosion in the white population around D.C. The only area of the country that had a growth in white people in the 2020 census was Washington D.C. Washington, D.C., which had traditionally been known as Chocolate City, stopped being majority black in the year 2011. In 2011, and for the first time, the black population dipped under 50%. The reason for that was because you had all these college-educated white people, these white millennials, who, if they wanted a decent life because of the loss of factory jobs, had to go to college. They got liberal arts degrees, and they all moved straight to D.C. They moved to the Virginia suburbs and turned Virginia blue. So that's why you see the the landscape is completely different. So this doesn't this doesn't mean that Biden won the election. That this circumstantial evidence can completely be discarded, but it's worth a lot less when you look at the actual numbers. I didn't realize that these counties before i dug into it and saw this article i didn't realize these counties were this white this is this is one one thing that needs to be taken into account so well, in uh, other words I, think, oh, go ahead. I was gonna say if nothing else that this whole thing about the bellwether counties just proves the saying is true demographics are destiny they are and it also shows that in the pol- in the the politics of the democratic party which has become so anti-white if you're going to look at bellwether counties, you've kind of got to look at counties that are sort of like half white, half non-white, that you would have to create a whole new set of bellwether counties. And you probably can't because we're, we are in a completely new political era than even 12 years ago. All right. So that kind of covers the circumstantial evidence. A lot of the other circumstantial evidence holds true. It's just those two points on the bellwether counties and also on Robert Barnes' analysis of the big four, which doesn't really check out. We can – and as we're going to get into in, in Pennsylvania – Philadelphia really doesn't check out with his analysis on that. So we're going to cover uh, the five states we're going to cover are Nevada, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Georgia. We were initially thinking about looking at Minnesota and New Hampshire, but the Trump campaign and Republicans filed no lawsuits in New Hampshire. They didn't even consider those states to have been up for grabs um, fraud-wise. And the final margin in Minnesota when you take a look at it, I remember going into 2020 predicting Minnesota was the state that Trump was likely to flip. I thought he would – he would hold every state and then flip Nevada, Minnesota, and New Hampshire because uh, he came very close in 2016. People forget this. He came closer to winning Minnesota than any Republican since Reagan in 1984. So I thought, oh, this is great, especially with the crime and the law and order stuff last year. Minnesota was ground zero for that. But then you look at the final margin by which Biden won Minnesota by a larger margin than Hillary did. 
And I remember looking at that and thinking, okay, I mean, Biden won it by nearly 230,000 votes, which was about a 7.7 percentage point margin. And that to me is just such a big number that even if there was voter fraud in that state, which I think there definitely could yeah, I'm have sure, been. Yeah, I'm sure it was, it was a lot closer. There, there was definitely voter fraud. It was closer than that, but he still was probably another squeaker that Trump narrowly lost like he did in 2016. One state that 2016 probably was stolen from Trump was New Hampshire because he lost that by yep. less than 3,000 votes. Very close so that, election. Yeah, so that's, that's very possible that, that that was actually in Trump's column then. But we're looking at 2020, so we're going to look at Nevada. So let's start out with Nevada. Uh, or Nevada, as uh, real real people as Nevadans actually pronounce <laughs> he it. And I, we we disagree. This is one thing we disagree on. We, Jacob and I rarely disagree on anything here at the right take. I mean, okay, that's not true at all. But one thing, one of the things we most passionately disagree about is the pronunciation of Nevada. But either way, so what's going on in Nevada? So Nevada, like a lot of states, we're gonna the way we're gonna before we dive in, the way we're gonna an analyze each state is we're gonna first look at laws that were implemented before the election that would have potentially uh, flipped the scales or uh, pressed on the scales in favor of Biden, and we're gonna look at the election through Safe Harbor Day or through January six, whichever one works out better, and then we'll look at what happened in the aftermath. So with Nevada. Like a lot of states, it altered its ballot integrity procedures before the election. A lot of this had to had to do with COVID. A lot of these states changed the way mail-in uh, ballots were tabulated, the way they were the way the signatures were verified before COVID to make it easier for people, allegedly easier for people to vote, which also made it easier for people to cheat. So they this made it harder to catch illegal ballots. And of course, the results of this was that in 2018, 13,087 were rejected. In 2020, only 4,122 were rejected. Now, Nevada was the only swing state in which Biden would have still retained his victory if Nevada rejected ballots in 2020 at the rate of 2018, since the margin of victory there was 33,596 votes. Another aspect of Nevada was that every single registered voter received a mail ballot, and more people voted by mail in Nevada than voted at all in 2016. So Nevada's mail-in ballot situation before the election was just a complete dumpster fire. This is from Fox News. Nevada U.S. Attorney announces district election officer to handle growing concerns of election fraud. This is before. This is from before the election. As conservatives' fears of election fraud roll in Nevada, one of the only two states to mail ballots to every voter this election, the other state being California, Nicholas Trutinich, the state's U.S. Attorney, announced Friday that he would appoint a district election officer to handle concerns of voter fraud in conjunction with the Department of Justice. Earlier this year, this is 2020, Nevada's Democratic legislature passed a bill to make it a universal mail-in state. Every registered voter is automatically being mailed a ballot. Another notable uh, provision in the Nevada law is that it will allow third parties to collect and a hand-in ballots on voters' behalf, a practice detractors call ballot harvesting. Previously, only a voter or their immediate family member could return their ballot. But the Trump team in Nevada said they've received dozens of complaints of ballots being sent to the wrong address, names misspelled, and other issues. They provided photos of ballots being delivered to the wrong mailbox or to no uh, mailbox at all, and ballots strewn on the ground or resting atop piles of trash. In Clark County, home to Las Vegas and 70% of the state's electorate, Trump victory spokesman Keith Shipper said he's received reports of apartment complexes, quote, being littered with ballots sent to folks that no longer live at the complex or ballots sent to the wrong place. And there's a picture. you got a trash can with just a bunch of random ballots all piled up, some of them laying outside of the trash can. People were just throwing away because you had these ballots piled up at apartment complexes sent to the wrong address. And you can imagine how this works. You've got, you got an average person who doesn't have any qualms about cheating. He walks by an apartment complex, and there's just a bunch of random ballots laid out with the voter's name, of course, on you know, their, their address and everything. They just scoop up that ballot, fill it out, and send it in. 
And the chances of it being caught, as we're going to find, are very slim to none. Everything we warned was going to happen is coming to fruition, Shepard told Fox News. But Trump campaign, the Trump campaign sued Nevada in August over its election plan, claiming universal ballots would undermine the election's integrity. The untended ballots in Clark County might be the result of 75,000 virtually inactive voters who will receive ballots after the county registrar missed a deadline to remove them from the roll. He just happened to miss that deadline. It just came and went. Apparently How convenient. For, yeah, apparently he forgot all about it. The Clark County registrar removed these 75,000 voters. Get this. He removed the 75,000 voters from the roll after their ballots were returned as undeliverable during the primary, meaning the voter no longer lived at that address. But days after the county removed them from the roll, the secretary of state forced their voter status to be reactivated because the county had missed a federal deadline to remove them. Quote, if I'm a voter and I see a live ballot just laying around, you've got to think at least subconsciously that your vote is being degraded. Here's a ballot just laying around that anyone could just pick up and try to get through, the Trump campaign um, guy said. He said a lot of people are getting multiple ballots because maybe there's some little change like their last name is misspelled or something is already. With multiple ballots, it's confusing to know which is the ballot they're supposed to turn in. That's uh, Shepard who said that. In one instance, a former Nevada resident who hadn't voted since 2016 and moved to Colorado had her ballot forwarded to her in California. That's not permissible. They're not supposed to be forwarded, Shepard said. In Humboldt County, voters were mailed ballots that had the wrong county listed on their return envelope. Their ballot return envelopes listed White Pine County. The county had to, had to mail voters new ballots along with a letter explaining the issue. Voters in Lyon County had to be mailed all new ballots after instruction sheets and along with ballots were not updated to reflect the new provision allowing any third party to return a ballot. Former Nevada Attorney General Adam Laxalt believes the careless treatment of ballots in the state could lead to high levels of fraud. Quote, Nevada is simply not prepared to guarantee a safe and free election, he told Fox News. He first points to the state's identity verification, which is done in Clark County through a machine that verifies ballot signatures match the signatures on record. But the county lowered the accuracy of the signatures to pass to 40 percent. If a signature is a 40 percent match of the one on record, the ballot is accepted. So all you got to do is match your if, whenever you sign a ballot. So you see. So let's say you want to commit fraud. You see a random ballot laying in a trash can. You pick it up. You fill it out. You sign the person's name. Mm -hmm. As long as whatever you don't know the person from Adam, you don't know what their signature looks like. But as long as whatever signature you put in matches their signature by 40 percent, that machine accepts it as real. I, I really wish that college, you know, in college, you're, you could pass your exams with just 40 percent. Like, you know, I'm, pre <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm exactly. pretty sure I'm pretty sure the standard for passing is at least 70 percent, if I'm wrong, Jacob, when it comes to academic tests. So I would hope that the same levels would be applied to something as important as ballots. But again, I mean, that's maybe I'm just crazy. I don't know. So the ballots are then reviewed by election workers, two of whom must agree that the ballot signature differs in multiple significant obvious respects than the signature on record before challenging it. The voter is then given the opportunity to correct either the signature on record or the ballot or the one on the ballot. Um, the guy said plenty of people who have their kids go off to college and their ballots mailed to their house. Quite obviously, that parent can't vote for their kids. That's illegal. Do you honestly think that that doesn't happen sometimes? That people aren't filling out ballots for other people, he continued. Oh, I'm sure that happens plenty of times. People fill out for their family members. They it's got, the easiest thing in the world. Because college students don't vote. And no, this, is, this is a big misconception on the right that all these college students are voting for the left. Half of college students don't vote. They, they literally just, don't care. Uh, uh, so most of them do it because it's being shoved in their face with vote you know, recruiters or whatever, or like people shouting on, on the campus plaza, hey, register to vote, register to vote, and they get in your face and they will not stop unless you register to vote. So if their ballots are mailed to their parents and their parents decide that they're going to vote for them, well, there's nothing to stop their parents from doing that, especially mm -hmm. in Nevada. He said, I get people all the time. They'll text me or email me. They'll say, I got all these extra ballots at my house. I got ballots for kids that haven't lived here in six years. What are we supposed to do with these? Laxalt asked. 
Most are going to be honest, but again, it doesn't take much for a percentage of the population to be dishonest and to vote improperly. Even if you think it's 1% or 2% who might have voted improperly, Laxalt continued, that's 10,000 votes or 20,000 votes. There's a presidential election. So this was, this was the situation in Nevada before the election even got kicked off. Another aspect of Nevada is it allowed people's ballots to arrive up to seven days after the election day, as long as it was postmarked on November 3rd, and it allowed an additional 11 days for the voters to continue curing them. That's seven days after the election day and then an additional 11 days. So that's 18 days after after the election day, after November 3rd. That almost could three continue. weeks. Yeah, almost three weeks they could continue to cure their ballots. That is extremely – again, I, in college, I wish you could turn an assignment like three weeks late, like past the original date. That, that would make things so much oh, easier. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The final total was 1,407,754 ballots cast, meaning that 77.3% of all active registered voters participated in the electoral process. That's an extremely high result. Normally, That's it's never goes above 70%. That's unusually high turnout rate, yeah. Of those ballots, 49.2% were cast by mail, 41% during early voting, and only 9.7% on election day. So half by mail. Yes, but if you count in, I mean, if you throw in early voting as well, then that's that's might as well be by mail. You're looking at more than 90 percent of the election that was cast before Election Day. On November 5th, registered voter Jill Stoke, Chris, Chris Prudhomme, a credentialed member of the media who described himself as a senior advisor to the state Republican Party who attempted to observe ballot counting in Clark County and campaigns for Republican candidates Jim Marchand and Dan Rodimer, who are running for congressional seats, sued the Nevada Secretary of State and Joe Glory, elections officer in Clark County, to force the county to stop using signature verifying machines, alleging the county's signature verification system uses lower quality images than the software requires. It also wanted observers to be allowed to stand closer. Stoke claimed she tried to vote, but was told the machine had already received her mail-in ballot, even though she claimed she'd never voted by mail. The judge agreed with Gloria that she could have filled out a provisional ballot if she that, that Gloria is the guy who was the the defendant in this case uh, with the with the county. He agreed. The judge agreed with him that this lady could have filled out a provisional ballot if she wanted to, and threw the case out. So he refused to even check into the case, basically saying, "Well, if she wanted to, she could have filled out a provisional ballot." But that's not the point. I mean, this lady showed up to vote, and they said, "You've already voted by mail." She said, "I've never voted by mail. I did not send it in." And the judge is basically like, "Well, you could have filled out a provisional ballot, but." That doesn't look at the reason why somebody filled out her ballot that or at least according to her and sent it in. That is actually unreal. And again, this is what the, the, a lot of people on the left say. Oh, judges threw out all the Trump campaign's claims of fraud, so obviously they were BS. Like, okay, this judge, why on earth would you think it's a good idea to throw this case out when the woman at the end of the day doesn't know why a vote was cast in her name? That mm -hmm. doesn't solve the problem. That's literally sweeping it under the rug. That doesn't make it go away. Yep. On November 5th. The Nevada Republican Party so lectures November 3rd, just so everyone's keeping up. Uh, November 5th, the Nevada Republican Party sent a criminal referral to the DOJ over 3,602 cases of voter fraud for people it claimed no longer lived in the state. This came from a list of voters identified by cross-checking voter registration names and addresses with a national change of address database. County officials and Democrats claimed this was probably the result of military personnel and people who'd moved within 30 days of the election. This became a big issue because there was this one yeah. military lady whose zip code was in the, the list sent in for, to, for investigation. And, of course, she went on CNN, all these liberal outlets claiming the Republicans are against the military. I'm a, as a military spouse, I'm greatly offended that they would think that my ballot is invalid. And, of course, it became a big deal. But it kind of ignores the point. Like, yeah, obviously there's going to be some people who are military personnel, but it's still a pretty high number. On November 5th, Las Vegas Review-Journal columnist Victor Jocks 
jokes, uh, I don't know, however that Dutch name is pronounced, revealed that his experiment showed that eight out of nine fake signatures were accepted in Clark County. For the Washington Examiner, an experiment testing the veracity of Nevada mail-in ballot signature verification reportedly resulted in an 89% failure rate, raising concerns about the integrity of the state's rapidly implemented universal mail-in ballot system. This guy, he said, quote, I wrote their names in cursive. This is people that he was doing this experiment with. He wrote their names in cursive using his normal handwriting. He said, quote, then they copied my version of their name onto their ballot envelope. This two-step process was necessary to ensure no laws were broken. The results contradicted assurances from Nevada officials that signature verification, the process of matching a voter's signature on file to the signature on the ballot, would prevent fraudulent ballots from being counted. So these are nine fraudulent votes because he wrote their name using his handwriting. They copied his handwriting onto their ballots. He said, quote, eight of the nine ballots went through. In other words, signature verification had an 89 percent failure rate in catching mismatched signatures. So. There's no reason to believe that any that if if he could get eight of nine fraudulent ballots to be counted using his handwriting that someone copied using their name, then it's obvious that anybody could commit fraud in Nevada. On November 6th, the Trump campaign announced a lawsuit against Clark County asking a judge to stop the counting of improper votes, alleging that tens of thousands of people in the state cast a ballot despite no longer living there. Because all the envelopes are separated from ballots, there is not much but because all the envelopes were separated from the ballots, there's not much relief that a judge could do, even if it was proven that they were correct. And this is the problem with a lot of these lawsuits. They separate the ballots from the envelopes. So you can make all these allegations you want, but unless you take a months-long investigation and audit of the results, it's really hard to prove. And the Trump campaign had literally three weeks to do it. They had three weeks uh, to go through the lawsuit, the discovery process, and the hearings. And, and time just, was not on their side. Yeah, there just wasn't time to do all this. They withdrew the lawsuit after getting Clark County to allow more observers, but not all plaintiffs withdrew, and the Supreme Court dismissed the case. That's the Nevada Supreme Court. At a protest on November 9th, Matt Schlapp, the, uh, the uh, president of the American Conservative Union, named two examples of dead people voting, Fred Stokes Jr. and Ro Rosemary Hartle, both of whom died in 2017. Information from the Clark County Registrar's Office does show that they received ballots for both Stokes and Hartle, but it's unclear whether the votes were counted or rejected. One whistleblower allegedly claimed to have seen a significant number of signatures on mail-in ballots that the person believes should have been reviewed but was pushed through, according to an affidavit sent by News 3 to, uh, to News 3 by a GOP official. Another whistleblower claimed to see a van marked Biden-Harris stuffing envelopes inside. It turned out Hartle's husband, a Trump supporter, committed the fraud by trying to vote for her. He was sentenced to a year probation this November in 2021. Now, as far as the van goes, the person, the affidavit said, quote, the doors of the van were open. Ballots were clearly visible. Ballots were open with letters, with letter openers, and ballots were refilled and sealed in the envelopes. In an anonymous interview with Laura Ingram, the whistleblower said she noticed it on her lunch break because she was a poll worker. And she walked by four or five times to make sure that what she saw was real. She was actually witnessing voter fraud. And the people formed a human wall when they saw that she noticed to keep her from looking closer. That's a classic tactic that the left has used, dating all the way back to the uh, the infamous Hillary Clinton collapse on 9-11 in 2016. <laughs> yes. they, she had like all Correct. the Secret Service agents do just form a wall like the moment she started just collapse to the ground so that nobody would see this presidential nominee literally fainting in public in broad daylight. Yep, yep. On November, but of course, as we're going to get to, the judge threw this out because he's like, well, that's just your word. You don't have any corroboration. On November 16th, the counties certified the votes for Nevada. Washoe County had an 83... Washoe County had an 83% turnout rate 
and 52.35% were cast by mail. Biden won by 11,368 votes out of 245,000, just, just barely a, a hair's margin. In Clark County, Registrar Voters Joe Gloria, which we mentioned earlier, said that there were 936 discrepancies identified out of the 900,000 ballots cast. Six voters also voted twice. That, that was what the Democratic head of the county recognized and identified. There were no overnight spikes in Nevada like in Wisconsin and Michigan. Everyone went to bed and went back to work the next morning. So this was not the case that we saw in those two states. On November 16th, a group backed by conservative activist and one-time U.S. Senate candidate Sharon Angle filed an emergency request to block certification of Nevada's 2020 election results over a slew of voter fraud allegations. The motion was filed uh, that Monday in Clark County District Court by Angle and the Election Integrity Project of Nevada, seeking an emergency injunction against the state, barring it from certifying the results of the general election and ordering a new election. The lawsuit stated that the Election Integrity Project group had identified uh, 1,411 individuals who had been registered to vote in Nevada, then moved to California, registered to vote there, but then voted in the Nevada election. It also said it had identified a list of more than 8,000 voters who had not voted since 2010 and stated that volunteers fanned out to many of those addresses to find out that many of the individuals no longer lived at the addresses. On November 20th, a district judge threw out the lawsuit for lack of proof. On November 17th, the Nevada GOP filed a lawsuit. This was the fifth overall in Nevada, asking the results be thrown out and Trump declared the winner. They argued that more than 15,000 people voted in both Nevada and another state, as well as voters who are listed as dead, cast ballots. We had a lot of, quote, we had a lot of improper ballots being mailed to people's homes and apartment buildings, they said. We, they also alleged reliability issues with the, they also alleged reliability issues with the ballot processing and signature scanning machine used in Clark County. The Trump campaign claimed in a statement that no less than 40,000 votes and possibly more were impacted by these various defects. And you've got to think about they're, they're funneling hundreds, there's 900,000 people that vote in Clark County. They're funneling hundreds of thousands of mail-in votes through this machine. And if there's a 40% match, it just runs through. There's no verification at all. So obviously, so the, a lot of people may say 40,000, are they just pulling that out of their butt? No, I mean, when you got 900,000 votes and you got this many hundreds of thousands being going through that, that being pushed through that machine, that's not necessarily an unrealistic number. There was also the gift card for voting scheme. The, there was a, this was a Native American get out the vote effort. They were giving away free gift cards if people could show that they had voted. The Trump campaign used this in its lawsuit on November 24th. The I'm pretty sure that's illegal, right? That's you can't what, offer financial incentives. You for. can't offer financial incentives, but the argument that the Indians argued was that it wasn't illegal because it was open to everybody regardless of how they voted. So they're like, we weren't giving people gift cards if they voted for Biden or Trump. We were just saying if they could prove that they had voted, they would be entered into a raffle for a gift card. Mm, that's which still, still, it doesn't kind of, matter if it's not on the basis of who they voted for. You cannot offer financial incentives to vote. Exactly. That's, you can't do that. A judge disagreed, though, and he dismissed this case because he said no candidate or party was shown preference, and this was dismissed on December 4th. On November 24th, the Nevada Supreme Court signed off on the election results. On November 25th, Nevada certified Biden as the winner. Also, also on November 25th, the Nevada Supreme Court agreed to let the Trump campaign present 15 witnesses to voter fraud to the district court in Carson City on December 3rd. So this was really the first time in Nevada that we saw any kind of any kind of relief given to the Trump campaign. And this is with uh, less than two months to go before the inauguration and right, after right. they've already certified it for Biden. after they've already certified it for Nevada. In the lead up to this, uh, to December 3rd, Clark County Registrar Gloria's workers shielded him, that is, shielded Gloria from being subpoenaed, and he locked himself in his house to make sure that he couldn't be served with subpoenas. 
In addition to the previous mentioned allegations, the lawsuit claimed that election workers in Clark County were pressured to overlook irregularities. That includes a direction to count a signature as matching so long as at least one letter looked the same. And the one matched. letter out of anywhere from like 20 letters. In, to in like, other words, every signature was verified. As long as it, it as long as there was a signature that matched the name, it was it was pushed through. There, there was no, okay, there's that L looks similar, so we're gonna pass it through. The suit claimed postal carriers the suit the lawsuit that the Trump campaign brought also claimed that postal carriers were directed to violate the USPS policy by delivering mail-in ballots to bad addresses. That could include someone who died or moved. Judge James Russell, however, threw the case out on December 4th for lack of evidence for any of the following allegations. And these were some of the additional allegations that the suit brought. 1,506 votes cast in the election came from dead voters. 2,468 votes were cast by voters who changed their address to another state or country. For, or, I'm sorry, or county. 42,284 voters voted twice. About 20,000 voters voted in Nevada without a Nevada mailing address. On December 7th, the Nevada Supreme Court also dismissed the Trump campaign's appeal. A justice who had a relationship with one of the plaintiffs recused herself, that is, one of the Trump campaign's plaintiffs, re she recused herself, although another justice who praised the Secretary of State and the state's handling of the election did not. And I saw this, I saw the quotes from this justice after the Secretary of State certified the election results, and it was it was some of the, the, the worst kind of butt-kissing you can possibly imagine. Like, he, he basically went out of his way to issue this broad, uh, bloviating statement about how the Nevada results were conducted without incidents and were the utmost standard of professionalism and basically bragging on the Secretary of State's office and how the election was conducted. And it was very obvious this justice is nothing but a partisan hack, and he was basically just trying to uh, trying to poke at the Trump campaign for claiming that there was fraud. So and this is why this is why I absolutely believe there was fraud because we, when our side, a witness on our side, is found to have any semblance of like a conflict of interest. Oh, you mean you have to go? But then their witnesses have no have all these explicit conflicts of interest. And they get to continue being part of the case. Yeah, because and the, the judge goes along with it. Of course, because the lawsuit is alleging that there was impropriety in the in by the secretary of state's office by the clerks, and this justice had explicitly bragged on them for lacking impropriety. So obviously, this is a case where he should have recused himself, but of course he didn't, and they throw the case out. The evidence then this is the evidence that the Trump campaign brought. It included twenty binders worth of materials. It was submitted to the court under seal, meaning it could not be viewed publicly. And this is one of the difficulties that I found when I was doing the research on Nevada is because most of the evidence was uh, was in these 20 binders that the Trump campaign brought. But it was submitted under seal and it hasn't been released to the public. But we do get a sense of where the, the 42,284 came from. Now, the 42,284, that was the voters that the Trump campaign claimed voted twice, that they had their votes um, recorded twice. So this would be a case of people – Send it in a mail-in ballot. It gets counted, and they go in person. They vote. It gets counted. Or someone could steal their ballot. It could be sent to a wrong address. They send it in fraudulently. It's counted. The actual voter goes in, votes in person. It's counted. So we get a sense of where that number came from in testimony before the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, a committee in Washington, as relayed by Jesse Benall, who was Trump's campaign attorney for Nevada. December 20, this was on December 26, 2020, when he testified. It originated from the expert report of Jesse Camzol in the hearing. This is the December 4th hearing before the Nevada Supreme Court. Camzol arrived at his number counting people who had the same ad the same name, address, and birth date, 
and that voted multiple times. So anyone who had the same name, the same address, and the same birth date in Nevada and who had a recorded vote, vote multiple times, all of these voters had multiple voter registration numbers. There are a few variations within this list because the first name of first name deviation, such as Bill and William. So, you know, the Nevada Secretary of State could argue, well, these are different, two different people. One's Bill, one's William. They're not the same person. But all 42,284 voters have multiple data point matches, including birth dates, from which he concluded with a reasonable degree of certainty that these duplicate voters are each one and the same individual. Now, the court. When it heard this, it didn't disregard his testimony or consider him a non-expert as the defense won. And this is what Democrats, and particularly because Democrats are controlled by academics and the elite, this is what they want to do. When Anytime they're faced with Republicans, they see Republicans as a party of rubes. So the Republicans bring on an expert witness. And this is what in trial, you can bring on an expert witness to testify. And what happens is the Democratic lawyers will say, well, this expert wit witness is somebody like Shiva Yadurai, like we mentioned in, in the last episode. <laughs> Dr. Shiva, yeah, Dr. MD, Sh PhD. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> he, he is constantly discriminated against because he's a dark-skinned Indian by the racist Democrats. And this is this is what the Democrats will do. They'll say, well, this guy's a kook. He's a conspiracy theorist. His, uh, his so-called expert testimony isn't valid because he's not an expert. Or they'll point – like he, maybe he's got a degree in – I don't know, geography, and they'll say this particular case deals with uh, – with I don't even know. What do you call that? Meteor meteorology? Meteorology. Meteorology. And they'll say this – he's not a meteorologist. He just has a degree in geography, so he, he's not an expert witness. And they want it to be thrown on technicalities like this because they claim that they – because they own ac uh, academia, as we're going to get into in a mathematician at Williams College who is a conservative – the guy's got a university degree from Yale. So in this case, they couldn't disregard him. And this was one thing that they blew up over because this guy provided testimony that was actually favorable to the Trump campaign's allegations of fraud. But in this particular instance, the defense wanted his testimony rejected. But the, the court didn't do that. They did not disregard his testimony or consider him a non-expert. Instead, uh, since no one followed up with any of those 42,000 voters or could prove that any of them voted twice or had two votes recorded, it didn't carry the day. So, for instance, someone followed up with one such case, and it turned out she gave her ballot to someone else to deliver, but voted in person just to make sure her in-person vote was the only one that counted. The state discounted the mail-in ballot. So that was one example out of 42,000 where the vote was not counted twice. But this is the reason why they weren't able to follow up, why Kemsall wasn't able to follow up with this stuff is because of time constraints. The election is November 3rd. The case was heard by the Supreme Court on December 4th. You simply don't have the, the numbers. I mean, and this is maybe uh, part of the fault of the Trump campaign. They should have had tens of thousands of volunteers lined up. So if you had the Trump a campaign slash the RNC. Yeah. So if you had a situation like this, you could have immediately on November 4th gotten tens of thousands of people to follow up with these 42,000 voters to check. And then whenever they brought this case to court, they could say, look, we followed up with all 42,000 and here's the results. And they could have presented it to the, to the court and the court would have probably agreed with them. But or at the very beginning, like you have volunteers and poll watchers at these polling places ready to watch for these kinds of irregularities. You know, and the, go, to go back to the Virginia election, uh, I'm not sure if you remember this, but on, Fair, on election night, Fairfax County was doing this thing where suddenly they said, oh no, we're not able to, uh, to release the numbers of the early votes at 8 p.m. on election night like we said we would we we need a few more hours to mm -hmm. rescan and everybody was thinking oh no here they go again they're gonna do it and then they ended up not pulling any shenanigans and if they did it wasn't enough to swing the election but republican members of the rnc uh, one being harmeet dillon from california said that they had people on the ground in fairfax county ready to keep an eye and to make sure nothing happened and mm -hmm. that may or may not be why fairfax didn't you know swing the entire election in one night yep 
on a related note, congressional candidate, Nevada congressional candidate Dan Rodimer lost a case. He took a case to court. He lost a case to redo his election because of a jurisdictional issue. But data in his case showed that more than 13,000 voters lacked essential information on their registrations, whereas in 2016, only 68 lacked that info in that that particular congressional district. That's quite a jump. Yeah. So from 68 in 2016 to now th- more than 13,000 who lack essential information like address, date of birth, yada, yada. On November 30th, Nevada Republicans dropped their federal lawsuit, which claimed voter fraud in instances where people who no longer live in Nevada voted in the state. This was the last remaining lawsuit unaffiliated with the Trump campaign that alleged roughly 10,000 people who had cast ballots, uh, ballots no longer lived in Nevada. The lawsuit claimed there were 3,000 instances of ineligible individuals casting ballots, and ballots have been cast on behalf of, de- of deceased voters. A deep dive analysis by marketing data analyst Rex Briggs in the Nevada Independent. He's the one who verified the one of the voters in the, of the 42,000 that I, uh, I talked about. So Rex Brit, uh, Briggs, this is a deep dive analysis that he did. He was actually hired by the Trump digital army to look into Nevada irregularities. So this wasn't a guy who was independent. He was actually hired by Trump supporters to look into this. He, so he is a marketing data analyst, um, and he published his findings in the Nevada Independent. He found only 3,800 instances of duplicative voting in Washoe County. That's one of the uh, one of the counties that went for Biden. That was kind of like full of suburban suburbanites who are independents. But he found that it was about even between registered Republicans and Democrats. He found that Biden slipped 0.7 percent in his margin of victory in Clark County compared with Clinton. So the the allegation that Clark County, the heavily you know the, the, where most of the voters are, that's what swung it. Not not exactly the case because it it wasn't really it wasn't like it increased five percentage points over Clinton. Some rural counties increased their margin over Biden compared with 2016 over Clinton. The major outlier, though, was Washoe County, which increased its margin of victory for the Democrat for the for Biden from 2,671 votes for a 1.3 percentage point margin in 2016 to 11,368 votes or a 4.6 percentage point margin. So Clinton won by 1.3 points. Biden won by 4.6 points in Washoe County. And this is what really pushed Nevada so far in the Biden win category. Now, Clinton did win Nevada, but she won it by a squeaker, whereas Biden won by a little bit more comfortable margin. And Biden lost. Remember, he lost 0.7 percent over his margin of victory in Clark County, the biggest county. But in Washoe County, he increased by three percentage points over Clinton. And this this kind of aligns with other states where Trump improved in a deep red rural areas he improved slightly in deep blue urban areas, which accounts for his increase in the minority vote. But he lost massively among middle class white suburbanites and college educated whites everywhere. I'm not. Yeah, I'm looking at some of these demographic numbers, and it's actually quite surprising to see that Trump actually won among voters with some college education, 52 to 46. And then the among voters with bachelor's degrees, it was a perfect tie, 48, 48, which you usually you don't see that. Usually Trump is the one winning among on the non-college educated and losing the, the college educated. So Nevada does have a lot of weird trends that are, seem to go against like what you see in a lot of the other swing states. Well, one of the things that Briggs pointed out, one of the reasons for that is because there's a lot of California immigration into Nevada. And a lot of people think that when Californians move to other states, they turn it blue. That's not the case with Nevada. And Briggs found that in Washoe County, there's a slight plurality of people who were born in California, actually, who live in Washoe County. And the more people he said he noticed moved to Cal- moved to Washoe County from California, the more red it trended. 
the, that most of the people who are born in Nevada tended to vote more Democrat than the Californians who moved into the county. And a lot of that is probably college-educated people, college-educated Republicans or Republican-leaning independents who moved from California. He found – Briggs found no evidence, though, of systemic voter fraud. He said that each person who voted, whether in person or by mail, has a voter record consisting of their name, voter ID number, and a vote method code. He also found that more Republicans than Democrats had home addresses out of state, which would make sense with the Californians. Briggs found that 3,100 voters had non-citizen ID, but speculated that they could have been naturalized citizens within the year prior to the November 3rd election, since there's no requirement for a naturalized citizen to update the driver's license. So that's that's it for Nevada. Um, so what happened in the aftermath after in 2021 and you know after January 6th and beyond? In March of this year, the Nevada GOP submitted 3,963 election integrity violation reports consisting of more than 122,000 individual line item allegations of fraud to the Secretary of State's office. The Nevada Secretary of State, just for, just for point of reference, is the only Republican elected to a statewide office in Nevada. So this is Republican Secretary of State. In April, a review of the reports found 10 possibly deceased voters had ballots cast in their names. One allegation was 8,842 Nevada voters registered with commercial addresses. To review the complaint, the office performed a statistical analysis with a sampling of the data, finding the majority of the addresses were apartment complexes, RV parks, or other legitimate locations where actual voters lived. For example, many of the individuals seemed to have been matched on such minimal information as birth year and street address, so there are a number of alleged double voters who merely live on the same street as someone else born in the same year. I find that highly suspicious and highly improbable that people who live on the same street and happen to have been born in the same year and have, um, you know, these are people who have the same name who are double voters. It's but, awfully convenient. But that is that is the that is the limitation of what we have on Nevada. It's not as much as what we have in other states. Um, so a lot of the allegations, again, the, the reason why they weren't able to succeed in court was because the. Obviously, the Nevada Supreme Court is heavily tilted in favor of Democrats. Yep. They they weren't willing to look at the evidence. But at the same time, even if it wasn't, a legitimate court would have a really difficult time giving Republicans the relief they wanted, which was invalidating the, the results because simply because Republicans did not have time to verify these voters. A An honest court would have said, OK, look, it's December 4th. We don't really – you know, you've got – we'll give you one week. You've got one week. If you can come up with volunteers to verify these 42,000 voters that you're claiming don't have matching addresses, then, then we'll give you an extension. Uh, but if you can't, then we've got to give it to the Democrats. That would have been a more honest way of looking at it. But the, the, the time constraints is one thing that we're going to continue to see with uh, state after state. So just looking over these numbers, uh, we've got 42,000. Uh, these are the allegations, 42,000 voters who voted twice. 1506 votes cast in the election, uh, last election that allegedly came from dead voters. That, of course, was investigated. And it was found that there were about 10 voters who were dead, um, if you can trust the Secretary of State's office investigation. That's a big if. 24 68 who were cast by voters who changed their address, lived in another state or county. You know, Briggs, who was hired by the Trump by Trump voters to investigate, he found that there's an equal number of Republicans and Democrats where that was the case. So that may or may not have benefited Biden. And um, but that that's basically it. Um, the the fact that you've got so many ballots that were sent out to all these voters to all these addresses where voters no longer live, I find extremely difficult to believe that there wasn't massive fraud with that. 
but without a serious organizational attempt by Democrats to commit fraud, of which there is no evidence, then it would be really difficult to say, yes, there were definitely tens of thousands of votes that were cast fraudulently. fraudulently. And there has been no – now, obviously, unlike a lot of other states, Nevada is controlled by Democrats. The legislature is controlled by Democrats. Republicans made a few gains. They picked up one state Senate seat, and they picked up three House seats in Nevada. So they denied Democrats their supermajority in the Senate, which it wasn't massive. It was very close. And it suggests if Biden did win legitimately, there was a little bit of split voting going on with people voting for Republicans down ballot and then voting for Democrats at the top of the ticket. But I ultimately take away from this, of course, the most important number being how many votes did Biden allegedly win Nevada by? He got 703,486 votes to Trump's 669,890, which is a margin of 33,596, which, of course, is significantly less than the 42,000 who allegedly voted twice. So technically, that could very well be enough to swing the entire state. And one other thing I wanted to point out, uh, this again was from Adam Laxall, who was the attorney general of Nevada at the time. One local election in Nevada in the year 2020 was thrown out altogether, and that was in Clark County. The race for the Clark County Commission District C, which was thrown out by Clark County Registrar, by which was thrown out by Clark County Registrar Joe Gloria, a name that obviously we've mentioned quite a few times here. This was a tweet by Adam Laxalt retweeting a tweet discussing that decision by Gloria, who said, quote, We have found discrepancies that we can't explain. That would cast a doubt on whether or not that margin of victory is solid, end quote. So some races were ultimately dismissed due to potential fraud or just discrepancies and irregularities that cast doubt on the results of the election. So it's not unheard of for, oh, there's enough questionable votes going on here that an election needs to be thrown out. Again, this is obviously it's a much smaller scale than the presidential race, but it did happen, and it was done by this guy, Gloria. So I think they're definitely, in, in my opinion, uh, my prediction stands, again, I predicted that Trump would ultimately take Nevada. I think... This confirms for me that Nevada was definitely stolen, probably by a narrow margin. Trump did win those six electoral votes. From from what we've got here, the information, I would guess that there were probably maybe uh, – just from the information we have, I think we can say with certainty there were anywhere from 500 to maybe 3,000 votes that were um, – that would slip, that would flip, which would end up reducing uh, Biden's, uh, Biden's win by about 6,000, which would drop it down to about 26, 27,000 in the margin. But again, we don't have – since there has been no forensic audit, we don't really have the kind of hard data like we do in Arizona. So I, my opinion on this is it's going to be – I'm going to take the same opinion on Nevada that you took on Arizona is that I simply don't know. There isn't enough data for me to say conclusively one way or the other that uh, Biden won or that, uh, that Trump won and it was stolen. So that is that is the information on Nevada, and now we're going to link to this stuff in the description. You can it's make it your own mind. You can decide. You can look at the evidence yourself. Uh, and, and one of the reasons why I want to do this is because most – I'm sure most of you already know most of this stuff because you were paying attention. Our audience is, is highly educated, highly engaged. They, they paid attention to this stuff last year. The difference, though, is because there's just so much information that came out from all these different states. There's an information to, overload. Exactly, yeah. So one thing we want to do with this episode is kind of provide a chronological – a chronological list of how each state developed the lawsuits, the, you know, the the uh, some of the high points of the of the evidence that was presented. But it's going to be a very very long list of citations, needless to say. So I, as too much as it turns out for character limitations on Rumble and BitChute. So if you want the full list of sources, we did this for part one. Go to our website, righttakepodcast.com, and for the list of episodes there, we have the full list in the summary of that episode, and we will do it for this part as well, episode 45, part two, 
every single link proving everything that we have covered in this episode. All right, so that wraps up our coverage of the state of Nevada. Next up, we are going to talk Michigan. <laughs> 